The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. I'm Sarah Eisen on day 166 of the coronavirus crisis. The problem gets worse in Texas. This marks one of that state's busiest days since the crisis began. We've not been able to control that spread. Spikes in several states. What a session it has been. Stocks whipsawing back and forth. There are concerns lingering about the virus. Tonight, how cities and states are trying to get the health crisis back under control. We'll talk to a chief virus tracer and what we can learn from the states that appear to be moving forward on a better path. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Sarah Eisen. Good evening. We'll begin once again in Texas, where coronavirus infections are surging. Prior to June 1st, hospitals in the 25 counties that make up the southeast region of the state were averaging roughly 700 emergency room patients Thursday. And on Thursday, that number hit a new high, 1,320 patients. Dr. Bella Patel is the director of critical care at Houston's Memorial Hermann Hospital. She's with us live tonight. Dr. Patel, thank you for taking the time Describe what the last few days have been like for you. You know, I think that before June 1st, as you mentioned, we actually were seeing a steady state of COVID patients and we were able to manage them. Right now, we're see- since June 1st, we've seen a steady incline um, in the number of cases week by week. And uh, we are noticing a 40 to 60 percent increase in admissions in the hospitals. And we've, uh, we're noticing uh, about a 6 percent positivity rate on testing when it was previously three. So um, as we're starting to see this incline, we're preparing um, and really uh, re- uh, re-engaging the city into making sure that we are actually doing all the things that we know we should be doing um, to decrease these rates of infections. Dr. Fauci was just speaking on CNN. He said that places like Texas should be thinking about slowing down. Obviously, the decision is up to the governor. But what would you suggest from your perspective to keep your hospitals like yours from getting overwhelmed? Well, I think that we uh, we know that we what lockdown feels like. We know what to do. So really, if we all practice the same way, we are wearing our masks, we're doing hygiene, we're only going to stores and uh, and places where that absolutely need to. And we do go to those uh, places of business. We really then need to make sure that we are actually um, all wearing masks and all protecting ourselves. So I think that just by uh, by doing the things we already know that we could actually carry on a normal life or near normal life um, without to actually um, continue to increase the spread. So it's really getting back to the basics. What is the severity level of the patients that you're seeing? What have you noticed? You know, we have noticed that now that um, we've gotten used to dealing with this virus in the critical care setting and in the inpatient settings, that we actually have some tools in our toolbox, so to speak. Uh, We have uh, remdesivir. We may have other therapies that we can actually provide patients. So we are seeing uh, rates of uh, decreased rates of patients needing critical care beds. Um, and, um, And we are seeing decreased lengths of stay in our hospital. So we are managing patients better. Patients are having better outcomes. But despite that, if we're not really monitoring these rates and really uh, putting in interventions to continue the, uh, to stop the increase, we will then overwhelm our system. And that's really what we don't want. 
What about the ages of patients and underlying conditions? Obviously, that was a huge part of the hospitalizations that we saw in the New York area a few months ago. Yeah, we're seeing um, a broad spectrum of ages. We're seeing some pediatric patients, uh, but the ones that tend to get hospitalized still tend to be the patients that are a little bit older, have some comorbid conditions, um, and the ones who end up in the critical care units are generally those patients. So, um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, 20 and 30 year olds can't end up in the hospital. Uh, we're just wanting to make sure that everyone protects themselves. And if you're really healthy and you feel like uh, getting the virus isn't going to put you at significant risk for being uh, seriously ill, just remember the people around us. We can we can start infecting our parents, our you know our neighbors who ha may have those underlying conditions and put them at risk. And how much capacity do you have left in the ICU at this point to handle this outbreak? So right now we have adequate capacity. Um, we've been preparing. Um, we still have across the city of Houston, it looks like we have at least 10% more capacity. Um, but uh, we know how to manage this. We know what we need to, how we need to compensate uh, for um, increased demand across, across all of our hospitals. So we can manage it currently, but we just want to make sure that, you know, four or five weeks from now that we're not in a place where we're going to have to make tough decisions. Dr. Patel, did, did Texas open too aggressively, in your view, that led to this? I think it's hard to tell. I mean, I think our rates started going up after Memorial Day weekend, and clearly um, that may have contributed to the rise. But um, I think it's even though Texas has opened up, it really depends on how we practice day to day. So um, and that question, I think, will we'll, as we're continuing on, we'll be able to get more details and try to figure out if that was the reason. Certainly it contributed. But again, it's in really all of our responsibilities, the businesses that are opening, making sure that they're actually providing the right types of environments for the customers and the customers to make sure that they're actually putting their health uh, first. Dr. Bella Patel, thank you for taking the time tonight. We wish your city and your hospital system well in this fight. We thank you so it. much, Sarah. One key to containing an outbreak is contact tracing. The city of Houston has more than 120 people tracing at the moment. They're led by the health department's health authority. Dr. David Purse is with us tonight and leading that effort. Doctor, thank you for joining us. 120 sounds low for a city like Houston. Do you have enough people going out? and contact tracing, identifying who's infected and how many people around them that they interacted with might be exposed? Yeah, so we're at about 120 now, but we're growing. We're, it requires training. So we're training classes and groups of 50 at a time. So that number will continue to increase. We're just at 120 uh, right now. And by the time this is all said and done, we're gonna need, we believe we're gonna need a minimum of around 300. Remember Houston is a community with a population of around 2.3 million people. So it's a lot of work. Why now is this happening that you're hiring? I mean, Houston, Texas, a lot of these states had months to prepare, unlike New York, when this virus hit. Why weren't some of these efforts underway? Well, we did have contact tracers. We, these 120 are new additional contact tracers on top of the nearly 100 that we already had in place, because these are the ones that are being paid for through the CARES Act money. And once we got that, we were able to start spooling up and uh, getting folks. And so our, our neighbors in Harris County have done the same thing. Uh, they're a little bit ahead of us, but uh, it all had to do with uh, you know, just the timing of getting people, reassigning them. And there are the other diseases continue along as well. And so we've had to balance that in the mix as well. So how successful ha has your team been in identifying cases and, and preventing spread by telling people to, to quarantine? I, essentially, that is what this is about. I remember reading in the outset of this crisis about South Korea, and they were able to trace you know, hundreds of cases to one person at a nightclub. Are you effectively doing this? So it's different for here in the United States. They had some tools with in South Korea that we don't have, or we don't have as sophisticated as they had in South Korea. So one of the problems that we have here in the United States, and people need to understand, is when somebody gets tested and they test positive, that becomes a case. We then have to do that case investigation and talk to that person and find out, you know, where they've been and who they've been with and where they think they may have gotten infected and where who they may have infected since then. Well, in order for that to happen, we have to be able to get in touch with that person. So before COVID, when a test was sent off for a communicable illness, like say measles or something on those lines, there was a doctor's office involved that gave a lot of information. And then the lab would give us the information as well. But the labs are used to giving us very little information, a name and a phone number perhaps. And we would then go back to the doctor's office, get the rest of the information to find the person. 
Well, with these open testing centers that we have, there is no doctor's office involved. And so we're limited with the amount of information that's collected at the testing center. But generally there's enough uh, information collected when you go to get tested, but the lab doesn't always report that to us. You compound that with the fact that we've had to ramp up this testing so rapidly, a lot of the labs that used to do something else are now doing this. And so we've had real problems with getting accurate and complete information from the labs. And then in addition, when we call people, a lot of folks don't answer the phone if it's a number that they don't recognize. And so we were having lots and lots of problems with getting in touch with people in order to be able to do the case investigation as well as the contact tracing because of limited information and the fact that people don't answer the phone if it's not a number that they recognize. So, so what has to be done to make this better and more effective? Because ultimately, all the medical experts we talk to say this has to happen to contain the spread. Yeah, and, and that's an important thing. It's to contain. So contact tracing, the, the whole gambit, the testing, case investigation, and contact tracing, which then is followed with people changing their behavior. We need to talk about that for a quick moment. That all uh, has to happen in order for it uh, just to be uh, successful. So the bottom line is that if we can get a hold of folks and let them know that they were a contact of a known case, they then have to change their behavior, which means they're going to need a quarantine. So if you're at work and you get a phone call from the health department saying that you've been identified as a close contact, we're going to tell you you need to quarantine yourself at home for 14 days. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Now, that works generally better in a situation where we're dealing with smaller numbers of people because we then have the ability to keep up with these people every day and make sure that they are quarantining themselves. But in a situation like we have now where the city of Houston, we sometimes get 200 new cases in a day. And if there's five to 10 or maybe even more contacts per case, the, the, the amount of work to get folks. So the bottom line is we're relying on people to do what we ask them to do because we can't hold their hands like we used to in the old days. Very quickly, David, I, I, Dr. Purse, I wonder how the restaurants and, and other businesses are affected affected by this. Do restaurants or, or small business retailers have to shut down if you contact them and say they've been exposed? So no, they don't have to shut down. If we contact them and we do the contact tracing, and let's say, just to your example, there's a, a employee at a restaurant that tests positive. We'll contact the uh, case. They'll tell us which coworkers they think were meet the definition of close uh, uh, close contacts. We'll contact those individuals. That we then find out they all work together. We'll often go to the employer, let them know what's going on, and we'll work with them because our goal is not to shut down stores or restaurants. Uh, our goal is to allow business to grow because it has to grow. We've got to have some growth in the economy. That's that's for certain. There's consequences to that as well. Uh, but if there's a critical mass of people who can't come to work because they need to be home in quarantine, then the owner may have to consider closing. But it's it's not because we're going to want them to, but they may wind up in that situation, uh, depending on how many people get infected. No, the, the, the restaurant owner can do something in the meantime. They can protect their employees by asking them or telling them or making them wear a mask the whole time that they're at work. So the spread of the virus, so if one employee comes in who's infected and they wear a mask, they're much less likely to spread it to their coworkers. But if you let your employees come to work and not wear masks, you're asking for the rest of your workforce to get infected. Dr. David Purse, we appreciate the time. We know you're very busy right now. Keep us posted. Now to another day of wild swings on Wall Street after yesterday's massive sell-off. The Dow taking a breather today after a meteoric six-day run. Stocks uh, retreating from the recent push higher, but the Nasdaq still managing to hit another record high. It's a long road. It's, uh, it's uh, depending on how you count it, uh, well more than 20 million people displaced in the labor market. It's going to take some time. Fed Chair Jay Powell highlighting the level of uncertainty that the Fed has about the economic outlook. Mark is not having a good morning on this Thursday. Brutal day for the bulls. And an ugly close to boot. History shows us that uh, it's very likely that we'll undercut the lows and get to levels that you know I've talked about before, which are maybe as low as uh, 1,600 on the S&P. Futures up 600. We're going to claw back some of the pressure from yesterday. Stocks have given back uh, about half the gains they had earlier today. After an early morning comeback, stocks are way off their highs. Stocks rallying in a volatile day of trading today to end what has been a down week on Wall Street. And here's how the day ended. The Dow ultimately rising 477 points. S&P 500 and the Nasdaq gaining about 1% or so. But even with today's gains, stocks finished off their worst week since March. The Dow off 5.5%. S&P 500 down about 5 But take a look at the small caps. 
The Russell 2000 losing 8% this week. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin noting this week that the names and amounts of those PPP loans will not be disclosed, saying the information is, quote, proprietary and confidential. The project on government oversight has filed a Freedom of Information Act request to see the names of the loan recipients, citing a lack of transparency. Danielle Bryan is the executive director of the Project on Government Oversight. She is with us tonight live. Danielle, why is the administration first holding this information and not releasing when usually the Small Business Administration does put out loan recipients? That's absolutely right. There is no good explanation for why they'd be doing this. And what's even more outrageous is that this is information that has really been available since 1991. The idea that government loan recipients, the names of the recipients, is somehow proprietary or confidential is really preposterous. Some of the explanations they're giving are just not they're not factual. They're arguing that this is information about salaries, for example. That's not one of the data points that's, that's to be disclosed. So this is the kind of problem. They came out with a statement, and they're not basing their explanation in any way on reality. You could see a situation, though, where, where you're a small business that has been a recipient, and, and you don't want your name out there. I mean, there, there are issues with privacy. Maybe they don't want that sort of badge of dishonor that they had to go to government for help. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm, no one made them accept these loans in the first place. But this is this is a case of, in, in fact, it's going to be millions of people who have been accepting these loans. So there's nothing to be suggesting that there's a badge of dishonor. The real problem here is not only that we're in fact, asking for cronyism and patronage and, and outright fraud if we aren't able to know who is getting the funds. But even more alarmingly, this means that the funds aren't available for those small businesses and employers who urgently need the money to stay in business. What, what is your suspicion here with why they're being so hesitant here to release the information? I mean, frankly, that was a question I asked is what do they have to hide? This is basic information that has been available long before the CARES Act through uh, previous laws that make sure that all government uh, funds of these nature are made publicly available. So to go backwards on something like this makes no sense. This is not just one law that they're violating. It's actually several laws they're violating. Well, they're going to have to continue to answer for it. Danielle, thank you for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Danielle Bryan. Thanks for having me. Here's what else is coming up next on CNBC's special report. We've heard about the spikes down south and out west. Next, how the first state, the great state of Delaware, moved forward safely. A hotel titan in one popular beach town who served as an advisor to the governor shares his insight. Next. Plus, what the stars are doing to help some of this country's hardest hit. And the whole community was in it with us. Graduating the class of 2020. Before the break, our nation on Friday night, June 12th. the horizon for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Delaware is getting ready for its phase two of its reopening. Ben Gray joins us now, the general manager of the Belmore Inn and Spa in Rehoboth Beach. He's also on the Delaware Reopening Task Force. Ben, thank you for joining us tonight. Beaches are open. This is the high season. How different is it looking 
this year than previous years. Good evening, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. It is definitely different. Obviously, this is an unprecedented experience that we're all going through right now. I think in our mind, we're just ready to have the visitor come back. It is certainly a different environment, a different atmosphere. What we're trying to encourage our visitors to understand is that we are now clean, we are safe. Rehoboth Beach is still the nation's summer capital, and we're ready, willing, and able to accept our visitors again. What do bookings look like? As of right now, believe it or not, we're pretty strong. I am sold out tomorrow night. So for the first time since the pandemic, I can actually say that we're sold out tomorrow. Our occupancy spiked about 20% in 12 hours over the course of yesterday into today. So the bookings have been strong. We have a lot of questions, a lot of guests concerned about their safety, but we have a lot of parameters in place to make sure that we have a clean, safe environment for them to enjoy while they stay with us. Like what? What are you doing specifically to keep them safe? So we have a contactless check-in. We have an opportunity for our guests to check in mobily using their device before they come to the hotel. Each door is sealed with a security seal, knowing that the guest is the only one that's gonna be entering that particular room when they arrive. We also have hand sanitizer throughout the building. We have contactless check-in, as I mentioned, in a wide variety of areas throughout the hotel that are clean and sanitized every 20 minutes, including high-touched areas like elevators, the pools. We also have increased our staffing in those areas to make sure that social distancing is being adhered to. We're looking at pictures of the pool, Ben. It looks like a small one. I'm sure it gets very crowded in the high season. Do Do you keep it open? We do, yes. And actually, we have two pools on property. The pool that you saw in the video there was the adult pool. So as of right now, we are restricted to about 30% occupancy for our pool areas, which means that we have signage there indicating that only a certain number of guests are welcome at the pool at one time. We also have signage on each pool lounger indicating that we're practicing social distancing as much as possible. The second floor pool actually can accommodate a lot more guests, and all of our families tend to go to that one instead. What other questions and and concerns are you hearing from your guests as they make these bookings? Ultimately, what they want to know is that we're going to keep them safe and that they're going to have an enjoyable time. They want to know if the restaurants are open. They want to know if the retail shops are open because we're known as the Culinary Coast. And as chairman of Southern Delaware Tourism, it's my job to make sure that tourism is encapsulated in our community in a unique and special way. And it's my job as the general manager of the Belmore Inn and Spa and as a part of this task force to reassure our guests that Delaware is open for business and that we are at a point in our business community where we can accept them and it is safe to travel. Ultimately, what we're reassuring them is that their businesses are open, the restaurants are open, the retail shops are open, and of course, the hotels. So they're still going to have an enjoyable experience during their summer vacation. What about the spa, which is part of the name? I mean, hard to think of a way to social distance if you're getting a massage treatment, for instance. That's an excellent question, Sarah, and that's what a lot of our guests want to know. Our spa, actually, for the first time, is going to be open on Monday. We have a 46-page manual that our spa director has created to help us get to the point where we are able to open and welcome our guests back safely. Per Delaware state law, all of our guests are required to wear masks in the public spaces, but we have unique ways to make it comfortable for them. All of our massage therapists and all of our therapists have been trained to make sure that they know the COVID policies and to make sure that they sanitize their hands, the guests sanitize their hands, we're restricted to 30% occupancy in the spa. So that's able to maintain social distancing while they can also have a nice relaxing therapeutic experience. We feel like we've been able to accomplish that with the standard operating procedures that we have in place. Ben Gray, good luck. Good to hear Thank that you, people Sarah. are coming back. Thanks for joining they are. us. We're open for business. We're ready class- for them. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. The class of 2020 may be forever known as the coronavirus class. Here's recent graduate Jenny Fuller from Pioneer Valley High School in Massachusetts in her own words. None of us really knew what it was going to be like. As we started off by having a parade, we traveled down to Main Street. And then we made our way to the drive-in. Our families had to get to the drive-in and they were all parked um, a car away from each other. We did have to wear a mask and then everyone else besides um, the graduate and the families had to remain in their car. We were able to take off our mask and Once it was our turn, we would walk across the stage and we got um, a flower, goodie bag, and then our diploma was on the table. We each grabbed one of those. I am the class president, so I had, or I chose to do a speech. Um, So that was definitely making me nervous. One of the biggest surprises of the night was probably the fireworks that we had. In the past years, 
other classes did not get fireworks or a graduation at the drive-in. The whole community was in it with us and celebrating and pushing us forward. And it was really, really awesome. Jenny tells CNBC she plans to attend American International College in the fall and major in nursing. Socially conscious food startup Every Table launching a new program to give underrepresented Americans a chance to own and operate their own stores. And it's backed by some major star power. Here's Aditi Roy. Hi, Sarah. Five-year-old Every Table is really trying to make it easier for people in low-income communities to have better access to farm-fresh and organic meals at fast food prices. It's backed by celebrities such as Kimball Musk, Gwyneth Paltrow, Maria Shriver, Patrick Schwarzenegger, and Baron Davis. The company has 10 stores, most of which are located in South L.A.'s food deserts. They offer better quality than local stores and lower prices than those in more affluent areas. What's Every Table's ne- next move? Well, the company recently raised $2.5 million to launch its social equity franchise program that would allow for 50 underrepresented minorities from low-income neighborhoods to own and operate their own store. Every Table will fund the store design and construction with a 0% loan no money down. Once the owner turns a profit, the loan will be repaid. CEO Sam Polk, a one-time hedge fund trader, says it's not just enough to increase food access. That's why he's turning his focus to the whole system. I think that what we're coming to see is, you know, a world that is fed up with racial inequality um, and, and class inequality. And the way to get out of that is true equity ownership. And so every table social equity franchise program, you know, is, you know, not the solution, but is part of the solution. The company keeps prices low by having one central kitchen in South L.A. that prepares the meals and also has 200 smart fridge vending machines at companies, apartment buildings, even colleges. Every Table also launched a subscription meal delivery program. And Sarah, beyond the food, though, Pope says venture capitalists are really waking up to the fact that what really moves the needle is hiring and investment practices. He says he's been getting a lot more calls from investors lately. They've been really heavily impacted by the George Floyd killing and are energized to do something in response to it. Back to you. Aditi Roy. Aditi, thank you. Here's what's next on the CNBC special report. Ahead tonight, their paths forward. Three business owners, three stories, and advice for all three from a private equity powerhouse. Their problems and her solutions when this CNBC special report returns. The Path Forward, your business. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. On the 166th night of the global health crisis, American businesses are fighting for their paths forward. Many are still struggling. Others have come up with ways to persevere, to push through, and to find new ways to thrive. Tonight, three business owners share their stories of struggle and their hopes of finding success once again. Now, the path forward, your business. Here's Sarah Eisen. Yes. 
Welcome back, everyone. Our focus on America's independent businesses begins right now. Before we bring in tonight's owners, I want to introduce our consultant this evening. Alicia Sirat is back. She's the founder and CEO of Pantegrion Capital. Good evening, Alicia. Thanks for being here. First, just want to ask you how the week has been going and what you're seeing and hearing from some of the businesses you invest and work on as states have reopened. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, It's been a wild ride, as you know, over the last few months. I mean, first, the businesses came to almost a complete halt and they were scrambling for the PPP loans. And then there was the focus on pivoting and adopting new products and new services and new distribution. And now, finally, I think we're starting to see businesses open up again and people starting to venture out. And the focus is really adapting to this new environment, the new health and safety concerns, the new focus on digital acceleration. But at the end of the day, we are focused on small businesses and they are so resilient and they're getting excited about the new opportunities out there, which is great. So as we look at the path forward now, I think we're seeing some optimism and this is really good news. What about demand overall, Alicia? We we see the stock market and even though it took a hit this week, down 5%, it's still up about 40% from the lows. For big business, it feels like a very different story than what we're seeing in in small business and Main Street. What can you tell us about that? Look, I think that um, there's truth to that. And the good thing about the stock market being so far up is that the people that are making angel investments will maybe feel a little bit more comfortable doing that. And that money can flow directly into small businesses. The small businesses are still struggling, but they are optimistic. And there's a lot of pent up demand from consumers. So I, I think we're seeing things going in the right direction. What sort of technological changes have you seen as consumers have shifted their behavior and and businesses are adapting toward a new environment? I think the big things that I would highlight on that front is a huge focus on direct-to-consumer plays and a huge focus on e-commerce and content and making that supplemental to businesses or making that part of a core strategy if it hadn't been before. So those are the big tech themes, I would say. Alicia, it's good to have you on board tonight. Let's bring in our first business owner. Jasmine Smith is the owner of BabyVend. It's an Alaskan company that sells baby and young child products through specialized vending machines. Jasmine, good to have you here tonight. First, tell us a little bit more about your company, where these vending machines are, and, and how you've been impacted by this crisis. Hi. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me. Um, our vending machines are centered um, in airports. That's our, our target market. Um, however, we were working on expanding to some new markets such as malls, um, amusement parks, and large shopping centers and co-working spaces uh, prior to COVID. So we are an Alaskan-founded and, and bred company. What have you seen as travel has basically fallen off a cliff in this country? Yes, we're starting to, to see it come back, but what's that meant for your business? Well, it took a nosedive for a little while. I mean, people were staying home. They weren't going anywhere, so there wasn't a reason to come to our, our machines because nobody was at the airport. So it was, it was rough for a little while. What are you seeing now with the pickup? Um, we're seeing that our sales are increasing again. People are starting to venture back out into traveling and we, you know, customize our products to meet the demand of our market. So we're starting to see our sales picks back up and we're seeing people um, wanting to do business with our machines. Alicia? Jasmine, uh, Alicia here. I love your story. I have to say I was so inspired reading about the single mom of twins creating this business, solving a personal pain point. And I just thought the idea of uh, baby products in a vending machine was so smart. I'm sorry to hear about the business uh, going down around airports, but it sounds like things are picking up again. And I thought it was so smart of you to adapt and add products like child masks and sanitizers in your vending machines. Um, But what I want to talk about now is we're going into this new environment where there are so many people that are out of work and they're looking for new ways to make money. I mean, these downturns are when we see a lot of entrepreneurial activity, right? So are you seeing big opportunities now where people are coming to you looking to lease your machines, looking to franchise your machines? What are you seeing there that's exciting? 
Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of that. It's it's interesting. I thought people were going to want to shy away from machines during COVID, but our requests for machines have gone up drastically and people are saying exactly what you're saying. It's the flexibility, it's the safety, it's not having childcare and being able to restock the machine with their family and customize it to the market. So we've definitely seen an upturn in people who are interested in vending in general, um, especially interested in our machines. And what about new locations? Because before you were in airports, you were looking at malls, but now everybody wants to get outside. They're so tired of being cooped up. Can we put these vending machines near national parks so that people can can go get some uh, fresh air and also have the baby, baby products nearby? What can you do there? Yeah. So, you know, our machines are able to go outside. They're environmentally friendly. And we actually have got a couple um, inquiries, some national parks who want our machines there. There's also some large parks that, you know, families frequent quite a bit. So there is a, a demand for machines there as well. And we've been looking at that, too, you know, since people want to go places where they can social distance and be outside and enjoy the weather. So why not have the supplies that they need when they're out or they're camping you know, in addition to whatever products that park might want us to put in the machine. Jasmine, as you talked about the drop-off in your business, how many people do you employ and, and what's happened with your employees? Were you able to, to keep them on board and keep paying them? And what, what is the situation there now? Yeah, so we're a small company. So prior to COVID, we had six people and we depended a lot on contractors. And then truthfully, once COVID hit, there just wasn't a reason to have that many people. And we went down to literally two people um, and then actually a lot of friends and family just helping run the business and helping us with operations in different locations. So as of right now, our business is picking back up. So I'm confident we're going to be able to rehire people and actually increase to more employees than we had before. My other question comes as a mom of two little kids where I would find something like this very, very useful. I mean, have you had to rethink the products that go in? More hand sanitizer, more wipes, more products that people need right now as a result of the pandemic. Definitely. And honestly, everything that goes into our machines, like I tell everybody, the story is just rooted in me being a parent. So I have definitely mm -hmm. um, added masks. We've definitely um, added hand sanitizer, more wipes, because we want people to move and, and have activities out in the community, but be safe. So we have customized our products thinking about just that. Jasmine, Sarah and I were talking earlier about the huge opportunities on the technology side, namely e-commerce has been a big theme for so many people. Now you have these physical vending machines, but are you also now taking advantage of e-commerce opportunities? What are you doing there? Yeah, so, you know, at first we were pretty hardcore, you know, vending machine, vending machine, but we found that when everybody was hunkering down, that's what we call it up here, and they were in quarantine, they wanted us to be able to send them products or mail them products. We got a lot of requests through social media. So we started working on an online store so people can get our products even if they're not at a machine. So we are working on expanding our online store and offering our products in, in the form of boxes and care packages. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. And good luck with the business picking back up, Jasmine Smith. Thank you. The CNBC special report is coming right back. Coming up, a travel owner and business gridlock. See what this business is doing to turn things around. And business in the bayou. We first heard from this man when this crisis all started. Find out about his path forward coming up. First, our world on day 166 of the coronavirus crisis.
While the airline stocks were up big today, it's been a tough run for travel stocks and the entire travel industry. Intermex is a charter bus and tour company which had all of its bookings canceled and is now working on solutions for reopening. Francisco Casillas is the co-founder and vice president of Intermex. He joins us tonight. Francisco, thanks for joining us. I know you have a lot of corporate clients that, that you do services for. What do the bookings look like? Is it starting to pick up? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Super excited to share my experience. Yes, now after uh, three months of being shutting down, then finally the corporations are starting to call in us. I, I think they're a little bit tired of being inside home. And uh, as they're bringing everyone back home, back to the offices now, then yes, we are getting to start. Um, we're getting requests from different companies and corporations. So we're excited to be back on the road. And how are you operating differently? How do you put in place safety procedures, for instance, to make the riders feel safe? So we're doing a lot of different things. So uh, first thing is we're sanitizing our bus entirely. Then uh, our bus drivers, they, we're taking their temperature to make sure that they're healthy to get on the road. Then they're wearing a face mask. All of, all of the passengers that are inside the bus, they have to wear a face mask. We also have extra uh, inside the bus just in case and a lot of uh, cleaning supplies available for them. Also, our employees are not able to touch uh, passengers' luggage. We care about our employees, so we have to make sure that you know they're also safe. So another thing that we're also recommending for our new clients and, and current clients is that we suggest 50% capacity just so that our passengers have that distance between um, each other. Alicia? Francisco, it's so great to talk to you, and I love learning about your company and seeing how it was a family business. I can tell that you're very passionate about travel, and congratulations also on the loans that you secured and the grants. That was fantastic. I'm excited to hear the business is coming back in. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about, which is really along the theme of what we've been talking about tonight, is your digital acceleration. Many people would look at bus businesses or charter tours and not really see a digital component, but it sounds like there's opportunity there for you, upgrading the digital reservation system, focusing on maybe online content, social media. What are you doing? You're putting out, what, virtual tours, making it easier for the, the customers from a technology perspective. What What's the opportunity there for you? So as we realized that, um, you know, all of our reservations were canceled, um, we wanted to stay on top of our clients' mind. So they were spending a lot of time on social media. So we created a virtual tour and we visited uh, a lot of iconic places around the LA area. We took a photo of our bus at each location and we posted the photo uh, every day with a fun fact about that location. And we receive a great engagement with our followers. They act, we actually increased 33% of our follower base. And um, for everyone that wants to check out these places, feel free to check out our Instagram page, Intermex uh, Transportation and Facebook, Intermex Transportation. These places are actually gonna be open pretty soon next week in LA. So if you're looking to have that selfie in your social media channels, then this is, uh, you can check out our page to, to see these iconic places that we visited. Well, it seems to make sense because it's there's a lot of pent up demand for travel now, right? So you're you're throwing out some content to get people excited. And on that note, I see Vegas is opening up, and I've seen that the theme parks are opening up, and people are eager to get to national parks. What are you doing to capitalize on that demand? Are you working with casinos to get people there? Talking talking to theme parks. How are you taking advantage of that pent up demand and and these places reopening? Yeah, so we have long uh, relationships with theme park, Disney, Hollywood. So as they're going to start opening up, we are sending our capabilities, letting them know uh, what we're doing and how we are implementing these new regulations with COVID-19 so that they feel comfortable riding a bus with us. So um, as they're starting opening up, then um, we share, we, we take up. Uh, photos and videos of the processes that we're doing so that they can share with their clients and they feel comfortable uh, riding a bus with us. So we are checking with them, following up weekly uh, so that when they're ready to get back on the road, then it's just a matter of getting on the phone with them and, and finishing up the reservation. 
Francisco, I, I think I heard you say that, that you're only re operating the buses at 50 percent capacity to comply with the distancing rules. I mean, can you make money with that kind of business? And for how long can you operate that way? So it is a recommendation that we are giving to our to our customers. If for any reason, uh, one of our customers, and this is one of the benefits of dealing with a small business like ours, you're dealing directly with the owners. So we're pretty flexible with our budgets. So if for some reason, one of our customers that before they used to rent one bus, and now because they want to feel more comfortable, they need to rent two buses, we're providing the second bus at a discounted rate. And that's just a way of us giving it back to our community as we get closer to uh to the opening day for all the all kinds of businesses so we do make money uh but you know we are adapting with this new lifestyle so you know way for us to give it back is uh providing a discounted rate to the second bus francisco casillas thank you very much for sharing your story tonight we appreciate it no thank you very much for having us there's more ahead tonight stay with us Straight ahead. We're very, uh, you know, very fortunate with PPP. A business owner check-in. He was having major problems when we spoke to him at the start of the crisis. Now see where this Bayou businessman stands when this CNBC special report continues. Tonight, we want to bring back a business from Baton Rouge. Kerry Guglielmo is the CEO of AST e-commerce down in Louisiana. He changed his business model during this crisis and has been able to stay afloat by doing so. Kerry, welcome back to the show. Just bring us up to speed on, on what you do. You are a former Nike exec. You work with them and a number of sportswear companies to make apparel. Tell us about how the business has changed. Well, we're in the corporate merchandise business, and what we do is we build customized web stores for companies on a just-in-time, on-demand basis, uh, ship out of our distribution centers in San Antonio and Chicago, and we've been able to put that model together, so it's uh, somewhat of an Amazon, if you will, in the corporate logoed merch world, and uh, all centered around technology. And how has that changed through the, through the pandemic? How have you made a go at it? Well, you know, it's been it's been very interesting. I, you know, we were on, and, and again, thank you so much for having us. Uh, we were on some sixty days ago around PPP, and we 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 talked about that. And uh, incredible community banker, Red River Bank, Tracy Rutledge, just amazing. Heidi Maybeal, Postal Weight Netterville, our CPA firm. We leaned on those organizations, and Gus Levy, and we were we were so blessed to get PPP and retain our team. And that was a really big uh, part of it. Took a lot of the edge off uh, as we were getting into the pandemic, because of course events uh, relative to merchandise and and those types of things things people are sitting on their money and things have slowed down we've re readjusted uh, our forecast and uh, we feel where we feel good excuse me where we are today there's a lot of hard work ahead of us for us though yeah Alicia Carrie, it's nice to talk to you, and thank you so much for sharing your story. When I learned that you named your business after your children and that you put your life savings into the business, I just thought, well, of course, we're, we're all rooting for you. And congratulations well, you. on the PPP loan. But also, I was really impressed that you took the time to kind of double down on technology during this time and then look at your offerings on the product front and offer PPP, PPE offerings. Um, so that was that was interesting to see that. But what I wanted to talk to you about tonight is um, the new environment that we're going into. Remote work is becoming so much more of the norm now. And I would expect that I would present some opportunities for you, right? Because you have these clients, these corporations that have their employees working remotely, and they're trying to figure out ways to keep their employees identifying with the company to reiterate that culture. And maybe they want to do that with branded merchandise. Is that something that you're seeing? Are they showing demand on these fronts because they they want to really instill that in their remote workforce. Tell me about that. Very much. Uh, we have somewhat shifted uh, working virtually. We actually work virtually, uh, a, a huge piece of our model at AST Commerce and maintaining that culture. I mean, you know, culture is such a popular thing these days for all the right reasons. And and companies, even though with the, circ you know, the current circumstances, people are not going to stop promoting their brand. 
and people maybe are taking a step back and pressing the pause button a little bit, but it's all about your people, right? And we discussed that during the PPP segment and, and maintaining your culture, continuing to promote your brand uh, just in a different environment, a virtual environment. Uh, and merch is a great way to do that if you can do it in an efficient, cost-controlled manner. And we, we feel humbly that that's what we bring to the table at AST Commerce. And on the merch front, are you seeing that there's demand in different areas now? So if more people are working from home, they're not getting dressed up as much. Are companies asking <laughs> to brand yoga mats or leisure wear? Can you do that for them too? We, we sure can. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, things have changed. And, and again, you mentioned everything from wellness to yoga mats to leisure wear to technology co-branded products to PPP products, you know, healthcare and taking care of yourself and from you, you name it, uh, from sanitizer to mask. And it, it is, if, if you would have told me six months ago what we were going to do as far as specific healthcare merchandise was concerned, uh, I, I, I would have scratched my head. But, but we're there today and we're, we're sourcing that through a lot of different avenues through our supply chain. The key for us is we can get companies out of the inventory game. Why would you want to be in the inventory game? I mean, why would you want to be a retailer if you're in corporate America? We get people out of the retail game and operate a just-in-time, on-demand, logoed corporate co-branded merch uh, program and, and platforms uh, for folks. So, yeah. And I, and I saw that you also really doubled down on the technology side. And I'm wondering, in doing that as a result of the pandemic, are you actually better positioned coming out of it because that technology focus allows you to scale more? So are you thinking now more broadly about the geographic areas where you could expand that maybe didn't seem like it was as, as big of a possibility when you were, you know, working the, the phones and uh, visiting people door to door? Well, Pre-COVID, 50% of our revenue, we hover right around a $2 million company. We're six years old. We're very young. We have a lot to learn, um, learning every day, making mistakes. But we were 50% uh, e-commerce, technology-related, and 50% non as far as our gross uh, gross sales was concerned. And we, we have shifted that. I, I will tell you that our goal uh, in 2021 is to be 80% all online. There's always going to be event-based business that's that's not specific to an e-commerce or web store platform, and that never goes away. But we will be doing that really only with our e-commerce clients. And we we have uh, you know we focused on on technology, uh, and we've we've been banging that word focus that I mentioned a lot, and really trying to do more business, pour more resources into a tailored down uh, client base. Kerry Guglielmo, thank you for the update. Good to see you again. A pleasure. We're very, very flattered you guys had us on. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of our business owners tonight. And, of course, to you, Alicia Serrett. Again, good to see you, founder and CEO of Pantegrion Capital. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Thank you for joining us. American Greed is coming up next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 